Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is that time of night where we talk about science and skepticism. Um, Mostly science tonight. Uh, So, as always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page. um, And you can find this uh, in another day or so and other episodes on your favorite podcast app. uh, Stitcher, iTunes, Podcatcher, whatever you use. And so first I wanted to give you an update to the CDC's recommendations on uh, the E. coli outbreak. And so we talked about that last week. And it turns out that the culprit most likely was indeed some sort of leafy green. Uh, But since there have been no new cases since December 12th, the CDC is not recommending any sort of avoidance at this point. Uh, So enjoy your lettuce without worry. Uh, I had some lettuce in my sandwich for lunch and not worried at all. And secondly, and, you know, it kind of pains me to have to say this, but it's been all over Facebook recently. Um, Please, 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 please do not put coffee into your rectum. Uh, (laughs) This seems to be the latest fad from our not friends at Goop. Um, And so, yeah, uh, they are offering a crazy device for, I mean, it's not that crazy, but a device for coffee enemas. And um, yeah, don't do it. It's a terrible idea. Uh, This is a terrible, no good, very bad idea, in fact. Uh, And also on that topic, uh, while we're thinking about these things, also please avoid at all costs colonic irrigations. This is also incredibly uh, ridiculous pseudoscience and again should be avoided at all costs. Okay, so let's actually start with some stories tonight. Um, And so the first one I wanted to talk about is uh, something that we talked about two weeks ago, uh, which was ants. And so uh, two weeks ago, I talked about how uh, there are ants that use tree resin and formic acid to create a potent antibiotic. Well, it turns out that there is another way that they protect their colonies from being infected by deadly fungus. And that is to sacrifice ants that have been infected before they can pass the fungus on to the rest of the colony. And so researchers at the Institute of Science and Technology, Austria, along with Royal Holloway at the University of London and the University of Würzburg, found that the ants Lassius neglectus are able to detect and will sacrifice ants that have developed infections. So Christopher Pohl, a PhD student, along with Sylvia Kremer from IST Austria, examined ants that had come in contact with metarhysium, a fungus that infects and ultimately kills ants. Pohl, now at Royal Holloway, University of London, said the ants could smell if members of their colony were fatally ill. This fungus became, becomes a danger to the whole colony if, ever, if even one ant sporulates with it. And so the ants have formulated an effective way to deal with it, kill their fatally infected colleagues. Now, they do this by injecting the ants with formic acid. Uh, again, that same formic acid that they use for other uh, fungicidal uses. And so that kills both the fungus and unfortunately also the ant. Now, they don't do this lightly. The ants do try to get rid of the fungus first, Professor Kremer notes. They care for the pathogen-contaminated colony members by intensively grooming their bodies to get rid of the fungus's spores. If this doesn't prevent infection, however, they kill the infected colony member. And in fact, the sick ants actually give off signals to tell other members of the colony that they are infected. So ants communicate using hydrocarbons uh, that stick to their exoskeleton. And this actually produces a signature to other ants so that they can know exactly what's going on with that ant. And is it the same kind of ant and how it's doing and things like that. That's how they communicate is through these hydrocarbons. 
And so when an ant is sick, they actually produce extra hydrocarbons, uh, which can change that signature. And what's really interesting about this whole thing is that it's very much parallel to the way in which the immune system works. This is a really interesting finding, explains Paul. Ants in a colony work together like cells in a body, with healthy ants acting like white blood cells to kill off another ant, kill off other ants they perceive as a threat. Um, and so it's really interesting to think about how these ant colonies act very much like a body, like a one giant uh, super organism. Um, you've probably heard that term before. And so the same way that a super organism is considered to be sort of one animal, that animal then has a uh, system for keeping itself healthy. And that's what they're doing here. So it's really interesting. Um, and I do like the fact that they don't do it lightly, that they do try really hard uh, to keep their compatriots alive. And, you know, it's, we never want to really, truly anthropomorphize here. Uh, you know, this isn't uh, the movie Ants or anything like that. Uh, they certainly don't have the same sort of ideas uh, that we have, but it is really uh, interesting to see that they have evolved a way in which to try and save their compatriots before they simply kill them. Okay, so last week uh, we finished with a story about Egypt, and so this week we have another Egyptian story. Uh, it turns out that during the Ptolemaic period, researchers uh, have recently translated an Egyptian papyrus written in Greek uh, from the Ptolemaic period, sorry. Uh, and so the first one is a recipe for a drunken headache cure. And so in order to treat a hangover, the text suggests stringing together leaves from a shrub called Alexandrian Camadaphne. And so what it suggests is to string them together and wear the leaves around your neck. Um, not sure how much that would help, but that is the cure for drunken headache. And the real reason that I wanted to talk about this is that um, it's actually just one of over 500,000 such papyri that were found in the ancient town of Oxyrhytius by researchers Bernard Grenfell and Arthur Hunt almost 100 years ago. And so because of the volume of writings, it's actually taken this full century for translators to get around to this recipe for a hangover. And so this translation, along with another 30 or so medical papyri uh, found in the city, was published in volume 80 of the translations uh, that have been continued, have continued to be made from this collection. And so this newly published volume represents the largest single collection of medical papyri to be published, wrote Vivian Nutton, a professor at University College London at the beginning of the volume. In addition to curing a hangover, the text also includes treatises and treatments for hemorrhoids, ulcers, toothaches, and even some fragments which discuss eye surgery. And so much of this knowledge was actually gleaned from Greek wisdom uh, spread with the conquest of Alexander the Great, um, and he was, his influence was particularly heavy um, in this city, and so it had a very heavy... Have, Hellenistic influence. And so one of the papyris contains a tooth powder recipe, uh, which was said to help with gum problems, while several deal with ailments of the eye, including recipes for a cleaning lotion called calorium. One recipe meant to treat rheum or discharge from the eyes contains ingredients including copper flakes, antimony oxide, white lead, washed lead dross, which is apparently a product of smelting, starch, dried roses, rainwater, gum arabic, poppy juice, thank goodness, <laughs> and a plant called Celtic spikenard. 
Now, I very much don't recommend trying to treat it or to put it anywhere near your eyes um, or to recreate it. And uh, so, yeah, that is kind of terrifying. And uh, including in that, there's also a section, as mentioned, about eye surgery uh, and it's fragmentary which makes it even worse uh, so you get these little snippets and then you hear then there's a little snippet that's something that says something like move the circular uh, knife towards the eyelid <laughs> and then there's a gap again um, so yeah it's very interesting um, but also some of it is a little bit terrifying I definitely uh, prefer modern medicine to some of the things that are listed there even though sometimes modern medicine can seem pretty scary too. Okay, so let's move on now to something that we're all very familiar with, uh, but we don't generally think of as having particularly weird properties, and that's water. Uh, it's something we encounter every day, and we just assume that it's, you know, pretty standard. But water is actually a deeply weird substance, especially when super cooled. So we all know that water is supposed to freeze at 32 degrees Fahrenheit, but it often manages to stay liquid at temperatures far below this. And so in nature, liquid water can obtain temperatures as low as negative 31 degrees Fahrenheit. Researchers say that at this level of cold, water reaches a sort of singularity. Yet what sort of singularity might water be approaching still represents an unresolved puzzle that has prompted the formulation of conflicting scenarios to interpret its origin, the authors write in one of the studies published last week in Physical Reviews Review Letters. Uh, and that was led by PhD student Claudia Goy from the Institute for Nuclear Physics at Goethe University in Frankfurt. And so teams of researchers have actually managed to get samples of water down to 230 and 228 Kelvin, uh, which is actually around 50, minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, a couple of things to remember. When talking about temperature in physics terms, what we're really talking about are the average kinetic energies of the system. And so that means that substances with less molecules vibrating and moving within the substance are considered colder than more energetic samples. And there are actually several ways in which an experimental setup can prevent water from freezing. And so basically what you do is you are preventing the formation of a nucleus of crystals that starts the freezing process. Um, so if you think about it, uh, if you've ever seen a video or if you've ever done this as a science experiment, if you take a bottle of water uh, that has been cooled below the freezing point, generally because it has been uh, purified or otherwise there aren't any solids in it to form these nucleuses. And then what you do is you tap it to create sort of bubbles and it will basically instantly go from liquid to ice. Uh, and so that's basically how the process works. And so the other thing to remember is that the fact that water actually expands when frozen is actually also deeply weird. Most other liquids do not increase in volume when entering the frozen state. And so in addition to the team reporting in physical review letters, another team of researchers from Sweden, Korea, and Japan, led by Anders Nilsson at Stockholm University, published a paper in Science last month, which suggested that they had found the singularity point for water. And so in order to obtain supercooled water, the team shot jets of tiny droplets into a vacuum. The smaller the droplet, the easier to cool to super low temperatures. Small droplets are less likely to crystallize around foreign particles, and dividing the drops into smaller pieces allows more surface area to be exposed and thus for the vacuum to more easily transfer heat away from the water. And so in order to measure the temperature of the droplets, the team used extra fast X-ray scattering, which is basically really fast laser pulses, uh, to measure the droplets as they moved and evaporated in the vacuum chamber. 
And so the researchers are able to determine the temperature by applying a mathematical formula that uses changes in the diameter of the water droplets as they leave the nozzle. And so the team that managed to get the water down to 228 Kelvin noticed that the water appeared to exist in two different density phases simultaneously. So they used computer modeling uh, that looked at how clusters of a few connected water molecules stacked up in the droplets. And so the researchers think this might actually explain water's weird density behaviors. So if you have droplets that have both high and low density components, that can allow for a greater range of temperatures at which the water can freeze. The team suggested that at certain high pressures and low temperatures, you would have two different liquids in a glass of water separated with a phase boundary, just like oil and water. And that's according to uh, Nielsen. However, not everyone is sold yet. Uh, for instance, Alan Soper from the UK's Rutherford Appleton Laboratory uh, told Tim Wogan of Physics World that he didn't think one could draw detailed conclusions and that perhaps the changes observed by the team were the beginning of the water crystallizing. They've clearly seen something and it's very interesting, he said, but what's actually causing it is probably something we don't have a straightforward answer to. Uh, and of course, that's the whole point, is that we still don't understand what's going on in this deep area of supercooled water. And uh, so hopefully they'll get some more um, accurate measurements and do the uh, experiment again and be able to get some really firm information about what is going on there, which one it is. Now, one of the areas in which this research could be really useful is in cryopreservation. And so one of the barriers to preserving anything containing water by freezing it is the fact that ice crystals form. And basically, when ice crystals form in cells, they lyse them or destroy them by basically bursting the cell walls. And so this is why organisms that can be frozen, uh, such as certain kinds of fish and amphibians, uh, they survive with, by using alcohol or other antifreeze substances that combat the ice crystallization in their cells. And so if we can sort of figure out what's going on here, we might be able to do cryopreservation better. Um, I still don't know if that would ever lead to the kind of uh, currently sci-fi uh, belief in being able to freeze a human being and bring them back to life at a later point. Uh, that is still at the moment quite, quite uh, unlikely and very much science fiction-y. But who knows? Um, maybe someday if we get back on track with our uh, science uh funding and our actual uh, science education, maybe we'll get to these sorts of pie in the sky, science fiction kind of things. But right now, I'm not particularly optimistic. Let's just put it that way. Okay, let's talk about something very interesting and cool that has nothing to do with any kind of uh, politics or uh, unhappiness. Let's talk about a shark and an interesting shark. I mean, all sharks are interesting. I really like sharks. I think they're really interesting and fun, and they uh, generally get a really poor reputation for things that they haven't really meant to do. Uh, usually, I always say that when someone's attacked by a shark, well, you were in its habitat, so who's really to blame here? But that's just me. <laughs> uh, so what I wanted to talk about was a new study that is looking at bonnethead sharks. And so bonnethead sharks are a member of the hammerhead shark genus Sfarna. And um, they have developed an interesting and rather unexpected dietary habit. It turns out that they eat seagrass. Now, this species is usually found in shallow estuaries and bays, uh, which have seagrass, mud, and sandy bottoms. And they're found generally at a depth between 33 and 263 feet. Their range extends from New England to the Gulf of Mexico and Brazil, and from Southern California to Ecuador. 
Now, in the U.S., they're most commonly found in the inshore waters of the Carolinas and Georgia in summer and off Florida and the Gulf of Mexico in the spring, summer, and fall. They tend to only be about two to three feet long, with the largest coming in at around five feet. And those, of course, uh, big specimens would be females uh, because the females tend to be larger. And they are also um, a sort of gray brown on the top and they have a lighter underside. They're actually really rather cute. Uh, they don't have quite the extended eye stalks of the, of the more traditional hammerhead uh, and they are very cute. And so the first evidence of plant eating came from a study published in 2007. Dana Bethia, a research ecologist with NOAA Fisheries in Florida, and her colleagues were examining the stomach contents of bonnethead sharks in the Gulf of Mexico. They were surprised to see that more than half of the contents consisted of seagrass. At the time, however, the team didn't know whether the seagrass was being consumed on purpose and digested by the sharks or just was incidental to their true meals of crabs and shrimp. And so basically the crabs and shrimps are living in the grass, and so they didn't really know whether or not they were just eating the grass as they got, the, got them or if they were eating it on purpose. And so intrigued, University of California Irvine researcher Samantha Lee and colleagues decided to test whether the sharks were actually deriving nutrients from the grass. We captured several individuals and brought them into the laboratory at Florida International University where they were fed a diet of 90% seagrass for several weeks. Now, the seagrass had been labeled with stable isotope carbon-13, so that when the sharks consumed it, uh, they would be able to test it for a signature of carbon-13 in the shark's tissues and to see if nutrients from the seagrass were actually taken up into the body. Now, in addition, the researchers collected the shark's feces and examined them to determine if the nutrients were being excreted undigested. They also looked for enzymes in the digestive tract for, of the sharks, which would allow them to actually break down the material to obtain nutrients. A purely carnivorous animal should have no mechanism to digest plants, but if the bonnethead shark eats seagrass regularly, they should have the enzymes for this purpose, they reported. And it turned out that the results were quite conclusive. Carbon-13 was found in the shark's blood, and they also found the digestive enzyme B-glucosidase in their guts, which is an enzyme that breaks down cellulose, which is, of course, the main component of uh, plant materials. And an examination of their feces showed about a 50-50 split between digested and undigested seagrasses. And the sharks seemed to have a little problem adjusting to a 90% vegetarian diet. We observed no negative health effects, and the sharks even gained weight during the study, the researchers noted. While in the wild, bonnethead sharks would likely eat less than 90% seagrass, the ability to thrive on such a high plant diet is further support for their ability to obtain nutrients from, sea from seagrass. So it turns out that far from being solely an apex predator uh, that only eats meat the way that most people associate uh, the term shark, these bonnethead Bonnet heads are functioning as omnivores, which gives them a larger range of food targets and could be helpful for their adaptive survival. Now, right now, they're not in any trouble, but there is one area of concern. The seagrass meadows that they are currently feeding on and within are actually threatened. Um, and so if they are destroyed, it's not clear what impact that would have on the sharks. And of course, the question also remains, do the sharks eat the grass on purpose uh, because they know that they can digest it or do they accidentally ingest it uh, when gathering their protein-rich prey and have simply adapted to this fact by developing the ability to digest the grass? Uh, for now, we're just going to have to content ourselves, ourselves with the knowledge of this amazing omnivorous shark. And... Uh, as an aside on the uh, sort of 
talking about sharks, uh, there is an older story um, where it turns out that there are sharks and other uh, sea life that actually can adapt to surviving in hot and acidic waters found in the caldera of underwater volcanoes. And so in 2015, sharks, including a scalloped hammerhead, uh, jellies, and small fish, were observed inside the crater of the Kavechi submarine volcano, which is located in the Solomon Islands. Now, the researchers were surprised uh, that they were able to live in such extreme conditions. And uh, one of the things that they noted was that they hoped that this boded well for their ability to adapt to oceans that are, in fact, increasingly warm and acidic. And uh, so it's nice to see that these animals were at least being able to live there. Um, And so this was sort of a rare moment when the caldera was not actively erupting, um, but it's still very hot and um, very acidic because there's still uh, sulfur leaks and um, hot spots that are very much active. And um, so it was very surprising for them to come across uh, sharks and especially things like jellyfish just swimming around in this really Um, inhospitable water, which would normally, you would think, would be the sole domain of more uh, extremophile uh, organisms. So that was really interesting. Okay, let us take a break for a moment, and we will come back and talk about another sort of, but not really, ocean-related story. Really, it just talks It just has a component about algae. Uh, But let us take a break and then we will come back to that. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, Women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. You don't let your kids play in the toilet. That's what it's like when pet owners don't pick up pet waste. Irrigation and stormwater can carry this pollutant to storm drains and retention areas where our children play. Do the right thing. For yourself and your community, pick up after your pet. Bag it and properly dispose of it in the trash. Remember, only rain in the storm drain. Brought to you by Stormwater Outreach for regional municipalities. Visit storm at www.azstorm.org. Listen up, employers. Veterans can be a great asset to your company or organization. Veterans have gained skills in leadership teamwork, and performance under pressure. Veterans have received the very best training in their fields and are never afraid to tackle a tough situation to accomplish the mission. 
If you are looking to hire a veteran, the Department of Labor can help you make it happen. You hire a veteran today, you won't be sorry. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lily Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on Internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. You are listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Mayor David Narkowitz, and I support Northampton's community radio station. This is Ruthie from Pedal People with a public service announcement. If you frequent downtown Northampton or Florence and you pass by the recycling and trash bins on the street, the public ones, I'm here to let you know that cups are not recyclable. No plastic cups, no paper cups, no styrofoam cups, no clear cups, red cups, blue cups, yellow cups. No insulated cups. Because if you put cups in the recycling bin, it means either I pick them out or someone at the sorting facility picks them out in Springfield. Or it contaminates the whole load too much that the whole load is considered trash. Or if you can just bring your own cup all together and not have disposable cups, that'd be even better. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your cooperation. Hi, I'm Ruthie, and I have a recorder. Stick them up. Listen to Out There on Wednesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. here on Valley Free Radio for interviews and snippets of life from the paths and streets of Northampton. You can hear past editions of Out There archived at weatherbeard.com slash out there. Do you love Latin music? Then check out Ritmo Latino. Tune in to WXOJ on Sunday evenings from 6 to 7 p.m. I'm your host, Kat, and I'll be playing a mix of styles from around the world, old school to new. Listen for local talent and upcoming events in the Latino community. So finish out your weekend with Latin style. Ritmo Latino, Sunday, 6 to 7 p.m. here on WXOJLP 103.3 FM. And we are back. All right. So, like I said, we are going to talk about a story that involves algae, but unfortunately doesn't involve the sea. Uh, Because, of course, you know that the oceans are definitely one of my uh, favorite topics around here. And so, this is a story about a new design for algae-powered fuel cells. And what's exciting about this is that these ones are five times more efficient than previous models. Uh, They are also more cost-efficient. Effective <laughs> and uh, practical. And uh, they have been developed by researchers at the University of Cambridge. And so such fuel cells could be used to bring electricity to areas of the world that are hard to supply with conventional energy sources. And so such fuel cells harness the power of photosynthesis. And they are also known as biophotics or BVPs. And so uh, algae, the the way that it works is that algae produce electrons during photosynthesis and some of those electrons pass outside of the cell 
and they are then able to be harvested to produce electricity. And so up until now, the cells have not had a storage capacity for one thing. Uh, and so they basically produce and charge in the same chamber. And so the electrons that are created uh, for power have to be used as they are released by the organism. And so this new system described in the journal Nature Energy features a two-chambered B. PV, uh, which separates the generation and conversion to power, which allowed the researchers from the biochemistry, chemistry, and physics departments to design the two units independently and thus optimize the performance of both processes. Separating out charging and power delivery meant we were able to enhance the performance of the power delivery unit through miniaturization, explains Professor Twomas Knowles from the Department of Chemistry and the Cavendish Laboratory. At miniature scales, fluids behave very differently, enabling us to design cells that are more efficient with lower internal resistance and decreased electrical losses. So the team also used algae that had been genetically modified to minimize the amount of electric charge that dissipated without being useful during the process. Now, remember, this is not ready for prime time, as they say. Uh, this is very much a prototype. Uh, it's still a tenth of the power density of a conventional fuel solar cell. Uh, however, the team does suggest that it is an important step towards making these cells actually ready to be deployed. While conventional silicon-based solar cells are more efficient than algae-powered cells in the fraction of the sun's energy they turn to electrical energy, they are attractive, there are attractive possibilities with other types of materials, says Professor Christopher Howe from the Department of Biochemistry. In particular, because algae grow and divide naturally, systems based on them may require less energy investment and can be produced in a decentralized fashion. And so, in addition, uh, being able to separate the two com components means that the energy can also actually be saved for later. Uh, so, it basically has both an energy producer and a battery function. And so, that means that you could charge the algae during the day when the sun is out, and then you could actually use that energy during the night. And in addition, uh, as, they, as he notes, they could actually be produced locally uh, so people who need them could be producing them in these rural areas. And uh, for instance, they point out that in a lot, in large parts of rural Africa, uh, they are just not able to access power grids. And so something like this could be really helpful to them. And another thing, of course, is the fact that there are, in most conventional solar panels right now, there are using they're using rare earth metal metals and uh the mining processes for rare earth metals are pretty terrible um you know it's definitely one of those uh sort of trade-off kind of things where uh of course there was big issues when priuses first came out that you know the mining operations that lead to the batteries are pretty terrible and how does that uh trade off and um so there is still some trade-off here as well. But uh, with the algae cells, there isn't that trade-off. That algae is pretty uh, safe and effective in that respect. Um, so yeah, very cool. Okay, let us now move on and talk about something that I just thought was fun. Um, and I just wanted to share because I think it's just a delightful little story. And I feel like we could all use more delightful little stories in our lives these days. Um, so the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston has recently added a new employee. His name is Riley. Riley is a Weimaraner uh, and he's just a little puppy. Uh, and he is being trained to do, to do something very important, which is search for insect pests that might damage the priceless works of art contained in the museum. And so insect infestations can have devastating effects. Moths will eat components of wool, silk, and cotton, and beetles will burrow into wooden objects. Silverfish will destroy books. 
and a host of other issues can happen. And so back in 2011, for instance, the UK was hit with an infestation of clothes moths and other pests that threatened textiles from across the country. Now, some of this stemmed from the fact that chemicals once used to prevent such pests were banned after having been found to be carcinogenic. Now, luckily enough, they were able to develop some new uh, things. So uh, newer pheromone glue traps have been developed as well as confusion traps. Uh, and this is interesting. What those do is they actually coat the male moths in female pheromones. Um, and so then it interrupts the mating um, patterns of the animals. And so then they aren't able to as easily reproduce. Uh, but of course, first the infestations must be detected. And another way to actually prevent them in the first place is to find infested objects uh, that are going to be added to the collection and be able to quarantine them and fix them before they are actually entered into the main collection. And so that's what the museum hopes Riley will be able to do. We have lots of things that bring, by their very nature, bugs or pests with them. Katie Getchell, chief brand officer and deputy director of the Museum of Fine Arts, explained in an interview with Anir. If Riley can be trained to sit down in front of an object that he smells a bug in that we can't smell or see, then we could take that object, inspect it, and figure out what's going on. That would be remarkable in terms of preserving objects. Now again, right now, Riley is just learning. Uh, Nikki Luongo, the museum's director of protective services and Riley's owner, plans to train him over the next year. Now, this breed in particular is often used as detector dogs because they don't get bored easily and they have a lot of stamina. And as a bonus, they have a short tail, uh, which makes working in a museum setting easier. Um, much less likely to knock something over. <laughs> and of course, he's not the only defense the museum is employing. Uh, he's rather an experiment to see if this sort of detection might be useful to museums around the world. And so uh, he definitely doesn't have to worry about missing anything at this point. <laughs> Uh, and in addition to this, a program at the Penn Museum in partnership with the Penn Vet Working Dog Center and the heritage group Red Arch are actually training dogs to sniff out stolen pieces of cultural heritage. And so this is reported in the Daily Pennsylvanian. Uh, the program is called K-9 Artifact Finders and is using materials from the Penn's museum to train the dogs to find contraband. So basically, if they can smell things that are, uh, you know, heritage materials, and then they can look at packages and try and smell whether or not those materials are there. And so if it works, the dogs could be deployed with customs agents to help turn the tide, uh, especially in the recent upswing of antiquities smuggling. So it's actually a pretty huge problem right now, uh, especially with ISIS and with uh, online brokers that are not particularly uh, worried about provenance and where people are getting things from that the unfortunately the trade in uh, illicit antiquities has really taken an uptake uh, in recent years and uh, a lot of people just unfortunately are not that worried about where their antiquities are coming from um, and it's obviously a continuing issue and a continuing um, sadness for researchers and legitimate uh, institutions that want to be able to preserve these items. And, um, you know, there is always the continuing argument about uh, the sort of idea of people like metal detectorists, uh, for instance, who find things, but then uh, if they don't work very closely with museums, um, or other institutions, then when you dig something up, you've destroyed a lot of the context of it. And it may still be a beautiful object, but it's a beautiful object that now has so much of its layers of meaning and importance have just been destroyed 
Um, so, I mean, it's a continuing issue in um, the world of antiquities where people are looting and are just digging things out of the ground and selling them to unscrupulous people. Um, you know, it's not unreasonable to imagine. Uh, you often see it in sort of spy movies, the, you know, millionaire that has a secret room full of stolen antiquities and, uh, you know, famous paintings that have been stolen from various museums. And unfortunately, that's not necessarily uh, a fantasy. Unfortunately, we know that there are a lot of people out there who have a lot of antiquities that have come from places that unfortunately have never seen the light of day in a museum or have never been able to be examined by someone who would actually know what they are. Um, so yeah, it's pretty unfortunate. So hooray if we can get some puppies involved uh, to continue to make that less terrible. Okay, so uh, we're going to continue in the sort of frame of animal stories. Uh, and this one's actually another pretty awesome one. Uh, you may have heard of Vanta Black. Uh, that is a black paint that is considered the darkest paint ever created. It absorbs uh, almost just under 100% of incoming light. Well, it turns out that as with most things we do, nature has already pretty much beat us to the punch uh, and done the same thing. So it turns out that a male superb bird of paradise has wings with a feather structure that trap 99.95% of incoming light. And that makes them look like they've basically disappeared into an empty void. Now, you can famously see this bird in a clip from BBC's Planet Earth, um, which I have posted and which will um, go up at seven. And uh, you should definitely watch it, uh, not only because they're very beautiful birds, but also because it has a dose of Dayton, David Attenborough's narration, which I think is pretty much a universal balm. <laughs> um, uh, I was saying to someone earlier today that, you know, if you're ever feeling bad, just turn on a David Attenborough uh, nature documentary. Everything will be fine. Um, obviously, I don't actually believe that. Um, but it is definitely something that I think is a calming influence. And so there are 39 species of birds of paradise, and they dwell mostly in Papua New Guinea. And they are obviously known for their amazing plumage. Um, I was at the Smith uh, greenhouse the other day and they had the bird of paradise uh, flowers were blooming and they're just you know spectacular and they very much look like these spectacular birds now usually we think of those spectacular co colors those electrifying uh you know the one of the birds of paradise um that have the black also have this electric blue streak um, and it's just amazing. Uh, and so we usually think of those colors rather than the black feathers. Um, but the black coloration of these feathers, which is created not by pigment, but rather by structural coloration, uh, like that used to produce most blue coloration in nature, really deserved to have a closer look. So um, if you didn't know, pretty much all blue in nature is produced using... Um, not pigment, but actually structural uh, qualities of the um, feather or the wing, um, the scales of the wing and things like that. So uh, this is exactly what a team led by Dakota McCoy, a Harvard evolutionary biologist, decided to do. And so the researchers wanted to find out just how the feathers achieve their amazing opacity. And so they published in the journal Nature Communications this week, and they report on the fact that the feathers have a unique structure, obviously. Um, and so whereas the usual structure of the feather has a central shaft or rachis that is then split into branches or barbs, which are then split into thinner branches called barbules, uh, and that are generally formed into a structure that is flat and fairly orderly, 
The feathers of the birds of paradise are actually irregular with curved spiky barbules and even cavities within the feathers. Light strikes the feathers and is repeatedly scattered within these cavities, McCoy told Matt Simon of Wired. Every t- each time it scatters, a little bit is absorbed, so that's how they become so black. Now, the feathers are able to trap between 10 and 100 times more uh, than regular black feathers. And so the researchers did this really cool thing where they sprinkled gold dust between two feathers, one belonging to the lesser melam. Melampida, which is a type of songbird, and the other a bird of paradise species. And so when imaged, you can see that the feather of the lesser Melampida looks shiny and gold, while the feather of the bird of paradise looks like nothing was applied to it at all. And as with most things that are weird and wonderful in animals, uh, researchers suggest that the deep black of the feathers evolved to better offsite the bright colored plumage otherwise used by males to attract females (laughs) and uh, this is supported by the fact that the black feathers not used in mating displays don't bother having this unique structural property that makes them extremely black sexual selection has produced some of the most remarkable traits in nature Uh, Rick Prume, a professor of ornithology and evolutionary biology at Yale and a senior author of the study, observed in a Yale University press release. Uh, And so, yeah, (laughs) but they are very cool. And I definitely uh, suggest that you go and watch the video um, and see some more of them. Okay. And so speaking of structural pigmentation, a new discovery of extremely old fossils from the order Lepidoptera, which includes butterflies and moths, has challenged the presumed co-evolution of such insects with flowering plants. Now, it's a fairly standard deduction, but it turns out that in this case, the fossils indicate that butterflies and moths had already developed sucking mouth parts long before the evolution of angiosperms or flowering plants. The 70 or so fossilized wing scales and scale fragments come from a drilled core in northern Germany dated to the Triassic-Jurassic boundary around 200 million years ago. They were examined by Timo van Algeek and Bas van der Schutbrugger uh, at Utrecht University, and they found that some of the remains included hollow scales, which are generally associated with insects that have a sucking mouth part. Now, others included solid scales with a herringbone pattern, uh, and those are generally uh, indicative of specimens that would have had jaws to chew food. And, um, you know, this is how it works in modern specimens, so they figured this is how it works in those as well. The fossil remains contain distinctive hollow scales and provide clear evidence for a group of moths with sucking mouth parts, which is related to the vast majority of living moths and butterflies, Dr. van der Schutbrug noted. The new evidence indicates that the first lepidopterans were associated with non-flowering seed plants, or uh, gymnosperms, the ecologically dominant plant during the Jurassic. The earliest proboscid moths, Glossada likely used their sucking mouth parts to feed on the sugary pollination droplets secreted by several groups of gymnosperms. Now, angiosperms began to dominate the world only between around 140 and 160 million years ago. And so the research also suggests that the mass extinction that happened at the end of the Triassic most likely had little impact on the Lepidoptera and in fact may have given the group a chance to diversify as new ecological landscapes developed during the breakup of the supercontinent Pangaea with a concurrent surge in volcanism along around the planet. Okay, so it looks like we are out of time for tonight. So I will be back next week and we will talk about more science and skepticism. You should definitely stay tuned for civil politics coming up next.